0: It's been a sad week for Irish rugby fans. Last Sunday afternoon's match between Ireland and New Zealand was a heartbreaking watch. Never before have Ireland beaten the world's best team and they came so close to doing it. But in the final minutes, in dramatic circumstances, New Zealand scored and robbed Ireland of the victory they so desperately wanted. Now the tactics for that entire match seemed to be perfect. Ireland seemed to do everything right. But you know, I've watched the last couple of minutes again just to see what went wrong, and there are a few moments there where better tactics, I think, would have won the game for Ireland. Think with me also about the collapse of the banks around the world. It seemed, for all money, that their tactics were brilliant. For years, they were making bigger and bigger profits. Until one day, their tactics failed, and everything collapsed. See, tactics are seen as brilliant when they work. But as soon as they don't, well, they should be scrapped. They don't work anymore. Because tactics are judged on results. So in our study in 1 Peter, we've seen Peter outlay what his tactic seems to be for the Christian life. He seems to be suggesting that if we live good lives with one another, that the watching world will see and will glorify God as a result. That seems like an excellent result. But of course the proof of a tactic is in its performance. And this tactic would need to work really well because as we've seen so far, what Peter's told us to do is actually very costly and very difficult. Take for example the submission passages that we looked at last time we were in 1 Peter. Submitting to governments even when we don't agree with them. Submitting to bosses who don't always treat us well or teachers the same. Submission in a marriage, which I know got a lot of discussion in the discipleship groups. So to submit is extremely difficult, and it's something that's completely countercultural for us. But the hope is that when we live these good lives, others will see it and think good of it. If we look at verse 8 of today's passage, And it gives another example of these good lives that we're to live. Harmony, compassion, brotherly love, all these things are there. Although these things, they aren't as shocking as submission. They're still really difficult to act out. Peter picks up on this subject of brotherly love again in chapter 4. So we're going to look at that in the next sermon. But what I want you to notice with this tactic and with the previous ones is that all of them are countercultural? They're costly to us, and they seem to the rest of the world to be extremely weak. But if the tactic works, it, it should all be worth it, shouldn't it? Well, Peter's got another one for us in this passage, and I want to spend more time on it, and that's looking between verses 9 and 12. And this is speak a blessing. So, true to form, Peter gives us this other instruction and it ticks all those boxes. It's countercultural, it's costly, it's weak. This time, what he says, we're not to repay evil with evil or to repay insult with insult, but instead, we're to return a blessing. Now, it's probably quite obvious to see how that comes across as weak. Not standing up for ourselves or fighting back, that's most definitely a counter-cultural thing to do. We're often told to be assertive, that we're to stand up for our rights. We're not to be wet tissues who give no resistance at all. But I don't think it's weak, what Peter's telling us. I think what Peter teaches requires immense strength from us. And it's probably in that where the difficulty lies. To hold your tongue when someone insults you directly to your face... That's an incredibly difficult thing to do. Isn't that we're to be weak and crumble under insult? We're to be strong in exercising our restraint and not lashing back? As much strength as that requires, Peter actually here is asking for more than that. He's asking for more strength. Not only do we not retaliate, we actively speak a blessing in return. We go further. Peter backs this up when he quotes from Psalm 34 that Emma read for us in verses 10 to 12. And notice all the verbal-related words as I read it to you. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. So verse 10 shows we aren't to retaliate in this verbal way. But verse 11, that goes further. We turn from evil, but then do good. We must pursue peace. So that requires a deliberate extra effort on our part, on top of the restraint that we've already shown. So imagine a situation in an office where a colleague's in a rage about a mistake that's been made, and he comes over to your desk and gives you such a t- tongue-lashing and personal insults are th- thrown All the while, you know the mistake is actually his. So what do you do? Do you return the personal insults, pointing out his faults? That's pretty much what he deserves, isn't it? Is that not fair and just? See, that question is a bit of a problem for us. Peter's instruction here, where is the justice in it? The person who's in the wrong actually gets to get away with everything. Well, I want to leave that question open and unanswered for now. Where is the justice in all of Peter's commands? So how do we respond to this colleague? Well, according to Peter, we speak a blessing to him. We can say that maybe we'll take on the task of fixing this problem. They don't have to worry about it anymore. Or maybe in our conversation, we actively phrase our language that shows respect for him and his work which maybe other people don't think he deserves. Maybe this has started you thinking this morning of times when someone has done evil to you or great insult has been caused. I'm sure people here this morning have experienced far worse hurt than this simple office example from maybe someone within your family or someone you used to call a close friend great insult or offence has ruined that relationship and you've been unfairly and deeply hurt. This is really difficult but in those moments we don't retaliate. We don't repay evil for evil. And in fact we go further than that. We do good and pursue peace by responding to their insult with blessing. And I don't blame you for asking, where is the justice in all this? It seems totally unfair. In fact, when we look at the other teaching on submission that Sam taught about, to a lot of us, that seems unfair as well. Where is the justice in it? Now, there's a few ways we can deal with it. I want to describe two possible approaches this morning. First, We realise that that's our tactic, and of course, as we discussed at the beginning, that's only going to be a comfort and motivation for us if the tactic actually works. Well, it should work because, after all, verse thirteen: Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Now, surely all these things that we've talked about—they're going to make us more attractive to a watching world. Being a Christian, that's going to make us better citizens. We're going to be better in the workplace, better in school, better husbands and wives. Even when people insult us, we're just going to bless them in return. Surely that will be very attractive, and other people will think Christianity is brilliant, won't they? Well, unfortunately, not. Peter doesn't even think so. In verse fourteen, even if you should suffer for what is right, and verse sixteen those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour. So This tactic isn't 100% effective. In fact, it can lead to even more insult and abuse. This is based on a true story, I know. Someone you've just heard this passage, 1 Peter 3, verse 9, preached on. And you decide to repair a sad relationship with a neighbour you've had a disagreement with. And the next time you meet, instead of being colds or avoiding them you decide to speak with warmth and with love and with kindness to them but the relationship isn't repaired in fact it actually gets worse your kindness sparks even greater insult the like you've never heard of before and there's even a jibe about your feeble christian faith you try to continue in your kindness but then you find out that they've been spreading malicious rumours about you to other neighbours on the street. So Peter seems to expect that living good lives will speak a strong message to most people and even cause some to follow Jesus as a result. And we should expect that too, sometimes. But when we repeatedly see a negative response and insults and slander actually increase does that mean we stop speaking a blessing to that person? Do we abandon the tactic? After all, it hasn't performed the way we would have liked. That's the temptation. But Peter isn't actually teaching us to think tactically or pragmatically, as we call it. In fact, that is the wrong way to think about this. Instead, Peter wants us to set our hearts and minds on something else. If you look with me at verse fifteen, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. This is the second approach, and really, it's the only approach. It doesn't always make sense pragmatically to live the Christian life that Peter has um, described for us. But living this life will only make sense if Jesus Christ is Lord. That may seem a bit vague, but Peter goes on to explain this in the rest of the passage. He first tells us what it means to act like Christ is Lord in verse 14 to 17. And then he tells us how Christ is Lord in verses 18 to 22. Um, So that may seem like the wrong way around, but um, hold on, we'll get to the explanation at the end. So what it means for us to act like Christ is Lord? Well, first, from the passage, it means we have no reason to fear. Verse 14, do not fear what they fear, do not be frightened, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. So the fear of the first century church was of exclusion and was of marginalization from society, of being disowned by friends and family. So pretty much the fear of being left out. And that's very much a 21st century fear as well. It can happen in school, with our friends, and even within families. Last Monday, I was able to go along to an event with some guys from Kirkpatrick here entitled How to Share Your Faith at Work. And we got some good discussion and we asked, what stops us from sharing our faith with our friends and family? I thought there might have been a range of different answers from people, but really one answer kept coming up again and again. And that was fear. Fear. So it's fear of people and how they'd react to what we were doing. Maybe we'd be called unprofessional. Fear that they might shoot us down and make us look stupid. Fear that we'd be treated like an outsider and then excluded from future things. These are fears I'm sure a lot of us face. Not just in a work setting, but in school and at home. And I'm sure they're fears that cripple many of us from living out our Christian witness. So because it's such a problem, Peter speaks to it. So what they fear, or what the world fears, is other people. Because other people can hurt us, they can reject us, and they can humiliate us. Maybe you can identify with some of these. I know I can, and I think the Apostle Peter can as well. Think back to the night before Jesus was crucified. Peter said he would, never, he would never leave his Lord. He would go to prison and to death for him. Yet before the cock crowed three times, because he feared men, he denied Christ three times. He was scared. But Christians aren't to fear what the world fears. In verse 14, we're to fear someone else. It's because we're to set apart Christ as Lord. It's actually him that we are to fear, and we'll see why in a moment. So if our fear is for God and not for people, what impact will that have on us? Well, Peter gives us a worked-out example of what that will look like in verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Verse 15, that's a very famous verse. It's often quoted. And the context here is exactly what we have been talking about earlier this morning. How to respond to insult. And in this example, Peter uses almost courtroom-like language. The verse teaches us that when our good behavior as Christians is being maligned, and people ask us, why are you living these counter-cultural lives in an almost mocking way? At that moment, we don't rise to the insult. We don't even just ignore their insult. That's important. We actively speak a blessing in return. So that's the same as verse 9. What we say to them is going to be a blessing, both in delivery and in content. So the delivery with gentleness and respect, and the content. The reason for the hope that we have. We tell him we have so much hope because of what Jesus has achieved and what he has in store for us in the future. Like telling someone about your faith, that may not seem like a blessing to you. In fact, it may seem like the most horrendous thing ever to you. The thought of yourself or somebody witnessing, it just makes you cringe. But this verse tells us we have absolutely nothing to cringe about we can speak about our faith in a positive and attractive way and we should strive to do it. A good place to start is with gentleness and respect. It doesn't mean adopting that peculiar, serious God tone and being extremely intense and scary. It's to be a blessing, not a fright. Gentleness and respect is the order of the day. And Peter says, give a reason for the hope that you have. So I guess we should be hopeful and joyful as we speak of it. He doesn't say, give a reason for the Presbyterianism that you have. but We can also be extremely positive about the content of our faith. I want to show you verse 18. For Christ died for sinners, the righteous once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That's just wonderful what is going on in that verse. Christ taking the punishment instead of us, making us righteous, us being able to be with God forever. See, what is happening in this verse, that's going to be a blessing for the whole world. If we tell people about it, we will be blessing them. This might be a good practice exercise um, with your family at lunch or maybe with your discipleship group. But practice explaining verse 18 to people in a positive and attractive way. You see, the content of that verse itself is truly a blessing. We don't need to add anything else to that. In fact, the only thing that will make this not a blessing is if we don't speak it with gentleness and respect. I realize as we've been working through this passage this morning, I've left two unanswered questions for us. Why should I continue suffering such injustice? We realise there's this issue of injustice in in what Peter has commanded. And why should I fear God more than man? Witnessing like this is incredibly scary. How do I deal with that fear? See, these two things, fear and injustice, they may stop us from living out the Christian life as we should. And hopefully verse 18 to 22 will will help us to understand this by seeing how Christ is Lord. These verses are a little bit tricky, but I'll hopefully be able to guide us through them. And I think the key to understanding them is the resurrection. So the great news in verse 18, it finishes with the resurrection. And in verse 19, it was through Jesus' resurrection that he preached to the spirits in prison. Now, I don't know exactly who these spirits in prison are, but we can guess together. They're some sort of enemy of God. So the act of Jesus' resurrection preached a message to the enemies of God somehow. So to understand what this means, we probably need to understand what resurrection means, and very conveniently, Peter tells us what resurrection means in verses 21 and 22. So it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Resurrection means victory. It means Jesus is in heaven now and angels, powers and authorities, they are all in submission to him because Christ has won. So when these enemies are preached to by the act of the resurrection the message they are receiving is jesus has won now all you enemies of god you must answer to him for the harm that you've done to god's people in some ways this journey that we see jesus go on through these verses it's like an athlete's lap of honor or the open top bus parade with a team going through the city displaying the trophy it's to show that Jesus is victorious. It's to let everyone know, and once these enemies see the open top bus parade, they'll know that they're defeated and that they'll have to answer for what they have done to God's people. So, setting our mind on Jesus' victory in the resurrection is so important for us today because if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, there would be no victory. And any injustice that any of us face, we could have no answer for that. There would be no point. But because of Jesus' resurrection, we can be proved to be in the right for our actions, for not retaliating, for submitting in this life, but by Jesus in his time. So that means we don't need to take justice into our own hands and repay the insult against us. Instead, we speak that blessing and allow King Jesus to judge in his own time, knowing that we've done the right thing. Even if we're to end up in a courtroom setting, like verse 15, we're being slandered and lied about, we know we can speak a blessing in return. Think of when Jesus was in a courtroom setting before Pontius Pilate Jesus could have answered those questions. He could have attempted to vindicate himself right then and there in front of that court. But Jesus chose to wait. He waited for three days later for his resurrection, for greater vindication. The story that Peter gives us in verse 20 and 21, that's another example of this vindication. So Noah built an ark to protect himself from the flood that God said was coming much to the amusement of his neighbours he tried to tell his neighbours come on trust God come with me to the ark but they laughed all the more and mocked him more for it again he went back to them and said no come to this ark but they rejected so when the flood did come Noah and his family were saved his faith in God was proved to be right by the water He was vindicated by the water. Peter then links us to Noah. He says, Noah was vindicated by water, and in some ways, so are you, because water is involved in baptism, and that's a symbol of how we're united to Christ in his burial and resurrection. So that means once we're joined to Christ in his resurrection, burial and resurrection, as symbolized by baptism... We join with him in his victory. The resurrection then means that all injustice we may suffer will be accounted for. So if we suffer in this life for doing good, by trying to make up to that nasty neighbor or by respecting the authority of that boss or teacher, we needn't get caught up in the injustice of all now. That isn't what is to consume us. Because if we believe that the resurrection happens... We must believe that Jesus will deal with all injustices. Of course, as Christians, we do have a responsibility to protect the weak and the vulnerable and seek justice for them. But when we are personally wronged, the only way that we can properly cope when justice doesn't come is with a heart that knows that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that he will one day be a fair judge. And this is what frees us up to speak a blessing. It's only once we understand this, that we can be free we can tell people of this hope without fear of the consequences, because we know we'll be vindicated by what Christ has done. And to finally answer that question of fear. Jesus has already gone on that open-top bus period of victory. And by knowing this, we don't need to fear. Because as Christians, we are united to Christ in his victory. So I hope that if we've gone through this passage this morning, we've seen that living these countercultural Christian life, described by Peter, it only makes sense if Jesus is Lord. Otherwise, we have no answer to injustice, we have no answer to fear, and we will have no hope. Of which to share with the world. But Jesus is Lord. He has proved he is victorious over all evil by rising from the dead. He will be a judge at the end to hold to account all injustice in the world. His victory meant that we have now nothing to fear. And finally, his resurrection gives us that great hope. Because he is alive, he is our living hope. And it's with him that that we can spend eternity in heaven. So when it comes to speaking to our friends and neighbours and colleagues, it's telling them of this hope in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ that will be a blessing to them even if they've done us harm or continue to. We speak a blessing. So let's continue in Kirkpatrick to live out this radical Christian life based on what the Bible teaches us, without fear and facing all injustice that we may face, because we know and can rejoice together that Jesus Christ the Lord is victorious. And let me pray.